Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Hey, what are you doing here? Uh, we're holding up the bank. We're holding up the bank. Oh, no, I'm sorry. We're holding up the bank. We're holding up the bank. Oh, no, no. We, we were here first. Look, could you come back tomorrow? We'll be finished by then. We've been planning this for months. We're not going to have it ruined by a jackass. All right, we'll take a vote. Uh, how many people here would like to be held up by this group? Right, now, how many people would like to be held up by our group? Now, beat it. Hi, Bart. Hi, Jenna. <laughs> how are you? <laughs> Pretty good. It's a big day. Yeah, we did it. We made it all the way to the end of the 60s, and now the podcast is over. We've kissed, married, and killed every year of the 60s. That's pretty wild. Yeah. Well, we haven't yet. Maybe we, will f we won't succeed with this episode. Oh, shit. You know, at the beginning of Kiss, Mary Kill, real quick, you were very, like, unsure of if this made any sense. And I was like, no, it's good. It shows off our taste in movies. And, you know, we get a really interesting, eclectic mix of stuff. And I like drawing little lines of comparison between these totally randomly scattered films. Do you still feel like this doesn't make any sense? It doesn't make much sense. But what we've discovered and what we mention every single time we do a Kiss, Mary Kill is our conclusions say a lot more about the two of us than it does about the year that we're covering. Because well, of the movies that we've chosen? Well, we're a big part of this podcast. <laughs> I think we deserve it. I'm going to try not to say that exact thing at the end of this episode, but we'll see if, if that works out. I am very curious if we can find anything in common with these, because I chose three movies on a theme, and you chose three movies on a theme, and those themes are nothing alike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I didn't, I, I don't, I usually don't try to draw any conclusions before we've actually had our discussion right but uh yeah just giving it a cursory thought right now no nothing connects these <laughs> movies <laughs> no but 1969 this is a year you hate i hate this year mainly because i uh when i ran a video store i used to make year shelves because i'm a little uh obsessed with chronology and and things that come out all in the same year and I got to the 1969 shelf and I filled it with all the the best known movies from this year. And they were all terrible. <laughs> um, 1989 might actually be a worse year for movies, but 1969 is terrible. There aren't a lot of great movies. It's sort of the cusp of the 70s when foreign movies started to get <laughs> really bad and American movies started to get really good. See, it's funny because when I look at my favorites of 69, they're like, they're great. So I don't know. I'm kind of, I don't hate 69, but I do know what you're talking about. There is a weird drop off in quality where the good stuff is still very excellent and the bad stuff is genuinely like borderline unwatchable. It just feels like such a transition year and nothing major really rises to the top for me, except for my Mary pick it was it was a pretty easy pick for me this time but uh let's talk about the movies of 1969 the top 10 in the u.s box office they were as follows number one 
Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Number two, The Love Bug. Number three, Midnight Cowboy. Number four, Easy Rider. Number five, Hello, Dolly. Musicals weren't quite dead yet, I guess. Six, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, a movie that we refer to often on this podcast, but we never seem to get around to actually talking about. Uh, Number seven, Paint Your Wagon. Eight, True Grit. Nine, Cactus Flower. And 10, Goodbye Columbus. And uh, some of the best movies that we've covered so far from this year uh, include Oshima's Boy, uh, Double Suicide, Medium Cool, Structure of Crystal, Lion's Love, Funeral Parade of Roses, Bunuel's The Milky Way. I think about Makunaima a lot. Yeah, the Brazilian comedy. I think about that. I don't know what I'm thinking, but I think about it. Not a ton of... I mean, Honor Majesty's Secret Service was the James Bond movie that came out that year, the the one George Lazenby one. Yeah, weird year. But I think the selections that we chose for this episode are kind of interesting. You know, wait, I'm still... I'm caught up on this top... This was probably the best top 10 list that you've read off. Really? Midnight Cowboy, Easy Rider. They're all movies that... I know I should love, but I don't care about what enough. <laughs> Butch Cassidy. I mean, I, that's I like that movie. See it's, that one, that, I can no. leave. I like Bob Carroll, Ted, and Alice a lot. That's another one I I actually would love to rewatch. That one of my favorites from this year that I didn't choose because I feel like we have to find a better place for it is Putney Swope. Mm-hmm. They shoot horses, don't they? Is a good movie. It's a weird movie. Yeah. Elvis's last film, Change of Habit, in which he plays a doctor and Mary Tyler Moore is a nun. <laughs> last Summer, one of my absolute favorite movies from the 60s. I haven't seen it, and I'm such a Frank Perry fan. It's You've never it's, seen it, really? Yeah, it's weird. Oh, girl, I know, I know a guy <laughs> who has a 16-millimeter print. I know. So and you promised over. me you, you'd invite me down once you got an invite to that yeah. screening. But uh, I don't know. I kind of like 69. I don't know. There's something about it. I think that, you know, what's cool about this year is that the fringe stuff is really, really weird. <laughs> yeah. And like the fact that, I, I mean, I still think it's cool that Midnight Cowboy or Easy Rider could be like a, a top film in the U.S., I mean, that world just seems even further away than ever, especially now where movies can't be released unless they're streaming. It's a definite sign. I don't love either of those movies, but they are clear indicators that American cinema was was heading in interesting places, at least for a while, for half a decade anyway, until box office mania blew up with Jaws in 75 anyway. But... Uh, I don't know. Transitional year. Not much more I can say than than that. Not a whole lot of things I love, but a lot of sort of interesting movies, I guess. Well, see, I had a hard time choosing stuff because of the fact that they are so different. And I ended up choosing on a theme, and I'm going to spoil that theme right now, which is that I decided to choose all comedies. (laughs) (laughs) And American, just, I think, right? One's British, but 
English language comedies. And then you went for just like foreign films all from completely different countries. And like serious foreign films. Well, <laughs> my kill pick is pretty goofy. But uh, otherwise, I don't know. Well, well, let's get right into my kiss pick, which is a movie I've been dying to see forever. The Cow by Dariush Marjui. After this, he directed The Cycle, which is probably a uh, more beloved Iranian film. But The Cow is uh, often credited as being the first film of the Iranian new wave. The Ayatollah Khomeini loved this movie. <laughs> they said that it may have saved Iranian cinema during the, uh, the Ar- Iranian revolution. Cinema kind of got a, uh, a little bit of a pass in Iran because Khomeini had a soft spot for this movie and other movies of the Iranian new wave. So uh, this film is uh, is about a guy who loves his cow a lot, lives in a, uh, a small Iranian village. His name is Hassan, Masht Hassan. And uh, the he's an important person in the village because they're he owns the only cow, so all the milk that anybody drinks comes from him. He loves his cow more than he loves his wife. He you know, likes to go bathing with his cow and give the cow flowers, a little uh, flower headdress to wear. And uh, on his last trip outside the village with his cow, he notices three sinister figures on the horizon, the Bullaris, who uh, we ne- never really get to know. They're just these threatening figures who've been accused of stealing sheep from the village and just uh, up to no good. And uh, and that and that's all we know about him. So when he comes back to the village, he's, uh, he's a little nervous that they're going to come and steal his cow. He unfortunately has uh, business in the nearby city the next day, so he has to leave the village. And while he is away from the village. His beloved cow dies. I guess this happens early enough in the film that it's not a spoiler for me to say that, but uh, the villagers know how upset he'll be, and they uh, decide to bury the cow and not tell him that the cow died. And and the cow died for no particular reason, just got sick and died. And they decide to tell Hassan that the cow ran away, you know, to give him some kind of hope that the cow might come back. But Hassan, when he comes back, is so upset to find his cow missing and knows that his cow would never run away from him and maybe suspects that the villagers are lying to him. But, uh, you know, mainly just the absence of his cow makes him start to go a little bit insane. And over the course of the movie... He starts to turn into a cow himself. He starts to live in the in the cow shed and eat hay, and it's very upsetting to all the other villagers. That's kind of the story. The movie is not quite as silly as that synopsis sounds, but it's also it it sort of embraces the absurdity of the idea, and 
I don't know. I thought it was pretty interesting. I liked it. I knew that there was some kind of allegory going on here that I wasn't quite picking up on, but I also liked just the feel of the movie and these this isolated village that's really superstitious and has very certain ways of doing things. And there's, you know, and there's a certain amount of cruelty in the village. Like there's a village idiot that all the kids abuse and it sort of gives you a slice of small village life. It never makes any attempt to tell you this is set in the past. You kind of have to assume that these are people in 1969 living the same way that they have for hundreds of years. Yeah. What did you think of this movie? (laughs) You know, I try to be honest in general when, you know, I watch a film and I don't get it because I feel like that is something that's sort of missing a lot from podcasts and general discussions unless people are like i don't know what happened but i loved it like in this movie i don't know what happened and i don't know if i loved (laughs) it or not i mean i am with you it was interesting when it got really surreal uh it's definitely dead serious i didn't really find i didn't think anything was funny but i also couldn't tell if maybe it was meant to be funny but i i would love this is the type type of movie that i would love to have seen in college where then a professor stops and gives you (laughs) all of the context of what's happening. I mean, like I, I really don't know enough about Iran at this time for me to like be able to point to specifics. You know, I know a little bit, but I think that's probably the only Iranian film. I mean, unless like something super modern, I'm trying, I don't even know. I, I can't even think right now of an Iranian film I've ever seen. So this was I, fun because I've never seen anything from this country before. But uh, yeah, no, I was don't even know what to think about this. Like, do you think this was damning of Hassan or do you think that Hassan was meant to be sympathetic? Um, I mean, I think in a certain respect, it was damning of small minded people who don't have much experience outside of their own lives in in the small village. But I also think it's addressing human nature and and how. You know, we all have these fears and attachments and I don't know. Yeah, it's hard for me to know what to what to make of this movie exactly. I don't think that I mean, Hassan kind of loses his mind. So whether his attachment to his cow we're we're supposed to judge as being a little unusual, a little wrong. Well, I guess, I mean, for me, the 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 thing that came through was, like, as you said, it was this idea that, you know, when you shrink your life down to something so small and then that thing gets taken away from you, then what do you have left? Because, I mean, he was so in love with this cow to the point that when his wife shows up, he's like, woman, like, you know, make me a sandwich. And, you know, he's, he treats his wife terribly. So that when the cow dies, she's the one who comes crying to the rest of the village because she's terrified of what her husband's going to do when he finds out that the cow is dead. And then, you know, everyone gets so worried that I guess they have to keep this fragile piece of their society together. So they all have to deny and deny and, and tell him that it is has run away but even that becomes more painful because then that instead of just it being dead which is something you can't control now it's they're sort of saying specifically this cow left you which is even more painful in a way than it just dying but i don't know enough about this 
small town society. I mean, I guess like things are universal to some degree, but I, my thing is with these foreign films, sometimes as we've said before on cinema 60, it's like sometimes foreign films are just very foreign. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this one, I, I just don't know enough about like, if it was a Russian movie, I feel like I, I could like interpret this, but when it's like Iranian, I just don't know enough about how they see small town life. But then I also think about how filmmakers tend to be cosmopolitan people and city folk like myself tend to be kind of jerks towards country folk. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it's a satire. Maybe it's like a like, you know, saying this guy's a fool and that, you know, everyone's a fool for trying to keep this dream alive. Question mark. Yeah. But at a certain point, midway through, the the subterfuge is given up. They tell the truth, and it isn't enough to save Hassan. And uh, he's, you know, still devastated and crazy. Well, because then the damage has been done, right? He already had the realization that he has nothing. and But I don't know. I really would love to read some academic shit about this. Yeah, and I'm sure there's lots written. Like, I'm sure... There's got to be something about how, you know, Iran is so dependent on oil as its main source of income. And it must be some allegory about the cow, you know, being the only cow to provide the milk for this village. And that, you know, this fear of not having that source of income or that, you know, that that resource available anymore. Like there's got to be something there. But I don't know how the plot elements that follow up on that idea have to do with oil in Iran. I, it really is something that needs to be researched a bit, I guess. Um, but what I do have to say about this movie is a lot like what I had to say about a movie that you picked in our last Kiss, Mary Kill episode, A Day Off, the South Korean film, in that you know, so much of what I've seen of Iranian cinema in the 90s and aughts and, and later is all it all really does seem to come from this film like you can see that it was an inspiration i i mean i i haven't ever delved that much into the iranian new wave i know you know i've watched a lot of films by abbas kiristami a lot by jaffer panari i don't like motion makalbaf very much so i haven't watched that many of his but i know you know i've watched a good number of these films and whether I like them or not, they all do seem to be inspired by this return to small village life and how this is kind of the the heart of the society and using this, you know, the small village as a, you know, microcosm of, of what's going on in their country or in the world in general. Like that seems to be something that, you know, so many Iranian films have stuck to since 1969 when this film was made. And it was just, that was what was so impressive to me was the kind of influence that this movie had on Iranian cinema for decades to come. And so that's why I really enjoyed watching it. I do think there is a sense of humor. You weren't sure whether it was supposed to be funny or not, but I definitely think that there's a sense of humor the the absurdity of him becoming a cow is not meant to be taken that seriously, even though this is a tragic movie. 
you know, it's not Oh Hazard Balthazar or anything. It's the death of this cow is uh, tragic, but the response to it is comical. The way the villagers don't know what to do about it, how to they don't know how to tell Hassan about it, and and his his reaction is uh, just so over the top that the comedy is intentional, and that comes through in that sort of combination of realism and absurdity you find in a lot of, especially Kurosami, but, uh, you know, a lot of Iranian cinema. And you also, there's an aspect of cruelty to this film that seems to to run through a lot of Iranian cinema too. The villagers are, are cruel to the village idiot. You know, they kind of treat him like an animal. You're, you were definitely meant to see, like, the treatment of Hassan's cow is, you know, more beloved than most of the humans in this village and this uh you know this one human who is not so smart as as everybody else is treated really cruelly and you know it's a, it's a lot of close observation of human nature and the way people are and you know not shying away from the ugly side of humanity and also addressing the fears i wish i had more of a context for this film especially in terms of what the allegories are all about, but I thought there was a lot here to to dig into, a lot that I enjoyed. You know what this was like? This was like that movie, The Stone Cross, that we covered in our Ukrainian national cinema episode, but if it was directed by Bunuel, had he converted to Muslim? (laughs) Maybe, yeah, I can see that. But I think, well, okay, that's interesting. So I think this, even the context of having seen other Iranian films probably is what I'm missing here because I was really confused by the cruelty in this and that kind of whiplash between really cruel and really upsetting scenes. I mean, like I, there was a clear absurdity in how Hassan turns into a cow like, you know, and it's shot in a way like I love there's this great scene where all of the village is looking through the the windows into this like shed where he keeps the cow and he's sitting there facing the wall himself in the shadows and like chewing hay, you know, and, and when he turns his head, his eyes are like completely wild and everyone's like, you know, like it is funny, you know, not like haha funny, but it's like, you know, it's absurd. But then, you know, when he starts screaming about like you know come save your cow and you know he's like screaming to the roof i just like i i i don't know like i like animals too much <laughs> <laughs> i had a really hard time kind of like this like whiplash of back and forth between just how nasty they were to that one guy in the village like you were explaining and then you know his sort of his anguish over this cow that like i don't know like anyone who's like lost a pet i feel like you can understand it mm-hmm. which is on it's all this is all on purpose clearly but i was having a really hard time kind of putting it together and like in how i was meant to be feeling if maybe i was meant to be unfeeling and this is considered completely absurd i feel like in you know like in america that's not that absurd (laughs) like someone having a psychotic break over losing a pet like i could do it (laughs) why not you know it really has to do with how people deal with tragedy and how life needs to go on like the subtitles were not terrific so it was a little difficult to understand you know get the names of characters and understand who is who and how they're related to 
Oku or, you know, and the, and the transfer is not terrific. So I feel like I did miss some stuff here, but there is this sort of like in the background, this sort of romance between this young man and woman. And, you know, we sort of get little pieces of that and we don't know what it's all about necessarily, what it's all adding up to. But we, you realize by the end that this is all sort of building up to this, you know, this is sort of a courtship and they're, they want to get married, but they need to wait for all this Hassan being a cow business to be resolved before they can really sort of move on with their lives. So everybody is just sort of at, at a certain point, they don't want to have to deal with Hassan. Like they know that they have to, because there's a guy in their village who thinks he's a cow, but it's, it's more, you know, just the comedy of this sort of burden of having to deal with this insane person is, is also there. And I mean, I think that's a lot of it. It's looking at human nature in a sort of metaphorical way using, you know, small village life as a microcosm. And, you know, these small scale plots are definitely a major part of a lot of Iranian films that came out after this is the, you know, this idea that you can deal with all of humanity, all of our emotions, all of life can be dealt with in these really small scale plots with, you know, with these villagers who are, are not particularly distinguished in any way other than they are doing and feeling the things that we all feel on some level. I like that. You know, I think you're right. Anyway, would love some feedback from others out there who might know, understand this movie a little bit more and give us more context. But I think it's pretty watchable. You may not want it to be the first Iranian film you see because it is a little confusing and odd, but uh, I think it definitely is enjoyable if you have you know some kind of slight context for Iranian cinema. Anyway, let's let's move on to your kiss pick. See, but now the the problem is that every, all of your movies are going to be like this, <laughs> where we have like you have like a really thoughtful interpretation, and then I'm going to be like, well, the next film's Cactus Flower, <laughs> which it is, Cactus Flower, nineteen. 69 I guess they all are it will but when your heart is ready you will find that spring is really just a state of mind some flowers blossom late but they're the kind that lasts the longest I a l diamond wrote this the Billy Wilder screenwriter yep and this is directed by gene Sachs. and i chose this because i've heard a bunch of good stuff about it and i didn't even watch it when bart texted me i watched five minutes of this and i'm never gonna watch it and i turned it off and i'm not doing it <laughs> <laughs> and that was my introduction <laughs> first half hour of this movie is terrible you have to admit well here's the plot so uh, we have Goldie Hawn in one of her first roles here uh, on in film. And she is playing a young 20-something who tries to kill herself because her married boyfriend stood her up. And I just suddenly had a realization right when I said that. I had a list, a running list of, of comedies that open with a suicide. And this gets to add it to that <laughs> list. What are some of the Anyhow, others? <laughs> I, um, it was Harold and Maude. Hmm. 
That was one of them. Thanks. I was just looking. I, I had a like I had a list. Like I found a, a review that I wrote on Letterboxd where I listed a bunch of them. And now that I'm on the spot, I can't think of any of them. But right. So Goldie Hawn named Tony and she tries to kill herself. She puts her head in an oven because her boyfriend stood her up. Her neighbor, Igor, comes around to rescue her. This guy, Rick Lenz, is the actor who looks exactly, I mean, exactly like Jimmy Stewart. Really? Like the lost hippie son of of James Stewart. You don't think so? I was like, I Googled. I was like, is this like a love child? He looks exactly like him. It's really weird. Anyhow. I thought he looked like a more handsome Michael Crawford or something. He rescues her and he asks her what's wrong. And she says, oh, my boyfriend stood me up. And also he's married and everything's useless. And so, you know, Igor is like, well, you know, I'm young. You're cute. What about what about this? But she's too distraught. And uh, it turns out that her boyfriend is Dr. Julian Winston, who is played by Walter Matthau. (laughs) (laughs) Like, there's a guy to kill yourself over. (laughs) (laughs) Like pushing 50 Walter Matthau with Goldie Hawn. And he's a dentist and he is a playboy. He's a total playboy of course, he's Walter Matthau, <laughs> a total playboy, and has a secretary at his dentist's office, played by Ingrid Bergman, who is, uh, well, she's like a nurse, I guess, but, you know, a nurse secretary. It's just the two of them in this office. Way more age appropriate, but she, of course, is an ice queen who is all business and thus is not a woman in his eyes. And... Again, despite the fact that she is Ingrid Bergman, (laughs) also in her 50s. But I mean, still, like, come on, like, we should all be so lucky. So because Goldie Hawn wrote a note to Matthau, he gets this note like a day later and then runs, rushes over there and and says, oh, my God, you know, I I realize I love her and and this is it. He says, I'm going to divorce my wife. But Tony feels so bad about breaking up his family that she insists that the two of them have to, that her and and his wife have to meet so that there's no hard feelings. And it turns out that there is no wife and there is no children. And he just made it up because it was a cover to just not be a good boyfriend. (laughs) He just wanted to keep playing the field and mess around. And so he told her that he was married and, and figured that all as well. But now that he wants to marry her because she tried to kill herself over him. He wants to come clean, but he can't. And um, also Tony like really hates lying and thinks that's worse than death. So he has to come up with a fake wife and kids. And he turns of course to Ingrid Bergman, uh, whose character name is Stephanie, by the way. But uh, the problem is unbeknownst to him, Stephanie has had a crush on him for her entire life, which is why she's stuck around in this job. And of course she feels hurt that the first time he's acknowledging her as a woman is to ask her to lie for him so that he can marry this young slip of a girl or whatever. So it goes on like this basically where it's like, it's Goldie being so comically sincere and empathetic that she gets cold feet about marrying the love of her life because she perceives that Ingrid Bergman still loves him or who she thinks is her husband 
even though she says she's totally cool with the divorce and she's trying to parade around other men too, but Goldie sees through all of that and it becomes, uh, it, it is a comical farce. I didn't hate this, so I don't understand what you thought was so terrible. You just hate Goldie Hawn. <laughs> First of all, imagine anybody being in love with Walter Matthau. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, he's <laughs> he's got comic chops, but what he's good at is playing really unlikable characters. And we're expected to think that all of these beautiful women are you know, dying to sleep with him, marry him, have harbored desirous feelings for him for a decade. It's absurd. I like Walter Matthau, but he's terribly cast in this movie. I don't know yeah. who would have been better. Like I was thinking maybe like Tony Curtis or somebody. Because, you know, there's Dean Martin or Dean Martin, you know, at least, you know, like physically attractive men who have some comic chops would be better in this role. But I guess neither of them were commanding the box office the way that Matha was at this time. So I guess they were like, oh, we can get Matha. Let's put him in there, even though he's the least desirable man who's ever been in movies. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Well, I mean, you're not wrong. I love Walter Matthau, but <laughs> he is not this character. He should not be playing Julian Winston, playboy dentist. Right. Yeah, it doesn't. That does not make any sense. I'm with you. Like Dean Martin really would have crushed it in this role. Maybe he was a bit old at this point. I mean, so was Matthau, but at least he would have been conceivably looked like someone who could have been a playboy at some point in his life. But, yeah, I don't know. This is like, I I didn't love this, I, but it was fine. I'm surprised. It felt old-fashioned, especially for 69, so I'm surprised that it charted mm -hmm. so high. You said it was number nine? Yeah, it was, it was in the top ten for sure. You know, it's like, I feel like Diamond's scripts are always kind of interesting because they're like this weirdly, they're like sort of, feminist in that they're always empathetic to the women like i wouldn't call them feminists completely sometimes they like i feel like he sort of mistakenly backs into feminism <laughs> well this is the most disgusting chauvinistic movie until it becomes it you know goldie hawn meets ingrid bergman and they hit it off like but isn't goldie that hawn... all of his movies i mean I that's the apartment <laughs> that's some like it hot that's you know that's all of those movies. Like they're really, they're really awful until suddenly something clicks and they're actually like, like really nice or, or at least like, you know, again, like they treat women like humans and suddenly you're like, Oh, okay. Like this one felt way nicer than, than all of them. Like it felt like sort of the culmination of all of his scripts to finally realizing that not only is like the age appropriate, a couple makes more sense than the non age appropriate couple. It's not it's not an age gap comment, but like, you know, it makes more sense in this movie, especially with Goldie Hawn makes absolutely no sense for, for Matthau. But I don't know. It's like a rare 60s comedy that ends with an with age appropriate love situation and like an empathy for women. I didn't hate it. Yeah, it's fun to watch. I mean, all the when it gets to the point where you're not hating all the characters for acting like idiots and Goldie Hawn falls in love with this woman who she thinks is her boyfriend's soon-to-be ex-wife and just wants the best for her. And the most of the rest of the movie is her trying to make sure that Stephanie or 
Matthau's supposed wife is okay, is not uh, upset about him marrying her. And, you know, there, there's a real sweetness to to both. I mean, Goldie Hawn is great. She won Best Supporting Actress, I think, for her role in this that year. And I feel like it's her kind of doing her Ronan Martin laugh-in thing. She's not stupid in this, but she's really innocent and in playing, you know, just sort of this naive, idealistic person. But there's such a sweetness to her that you really like the character. And Ingrid Bergman is just, you know, sort of the strong, repressed woman who you you want her to, like, come out of her shell. And when she does, it's pretty spectacular when she's, you know, dancing in the nightclub in her you know, 1969 Oscar gown, you know, the ugliest dress that any woman has ever worn, but it's what <laughs> what women that age wore at that time in 1969. But it, yeah, when it focuses on the women, this movie's a lot of fun. When it focuses on how they love Mathau, it's <laughs> ridiculous. You know, one of the things I actually really liked about this movie was how it treats the younger generation as seemingly knowing more like it, it's very kind to Goldie Hawn and it's also kind to her values in a way that you really don't see. I mean, like I just think about those corny movies we watched for, or for the LSD episode where, you know, it was really like, why would anyone ever be a hippie? Like, this is so stupid. All these guys do is just like talk about flowers and sit around naked and, and you know, like do drugs like you know th there's nothing dismissive about them in this movie granted you know it's it's a caricature it's still it, it goldie hans being silly and naive but at the same time like i really like how there's a scene where mathau buys her a mink because he wants to show her how much he loves her but in 1969 goldie hans like what the hell am i gonna do with <laughs> a mink who then decides that you know oh, i'm gonna send it to bergman thinking that you know this is the the wife and and she's gonna love it and then she gets this mink in the mail from Mathau, and she's completely floored and she thinks oh my god i've made it like this is it because she's a 50 year old woman and that's what 50 year old women want and you know there's a i i kind of like that you know like there whenever um goldie hahn is doing something you know, like she, you know, runs around her little music shop in her short skirts. And there's definitely jokes about people trying to look up her skirt and crap like that. But like, she doesn't get infantilized in a weird way. Like she, she's sort of doing it herself for comedic reasons, but her character is really treated fairly respectfully. And even to the point where you realize that Bergman actually takes on more characteristics of her and realizes that, yeah, like actually the kids are all right. And this is stuff that I've been missing in my life. And here I've, I've sat here being the, you know, the perfect quiet dormouse and, and doing the bidding of this man. And he never even noticed me or considered me even human. So screw that, you know, I'm going to go out and live my life and be happy. And so that was kind of nice. And considering that's written by a, also a 50 year old man, <laughs> Who Diamond was at this time. It's also based on a, a French play, and it feels very French, the, the yeah. sexual politics of it. But he could have, there could have been so many more digs at Goldie Hawn and at, you know, there's there's great shots in Greenwich Village that are that are actually on the street in Greenwich Village, which is really funny, even though all the sets are clearly sets. Uh, the street stuff is cool. I mean, that's like a cool, like, you know, we're in the end of the 60s when you actually see a real street. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
but I, Igor, I also like, you know, Igor sort of shows up all the time with no shirt on or he's like half naked and just kind of wanders in and out and is also pretty bohemian besides being named Igor and in, in 69, it feels also like a good nod to how the son of immigrants is, is just as American as, as anyone else. Hmm. Yeah, he's likable. He doesn't have much of an arc, but you want uh, Tony and Igor to be together. You know exactly where this movie's headed right from the start, and it gets there, but fortunately it does become you know, a fairly enjoyable ride in the, in the last two-thirds. Yeah, it was okay. I didn't like laugh out loud particularly. I'm trying to think about what made me like it was really more like smiling at like just Goldie Hawn's character being so like terrified of what's going to become of the wife, which is also again, like that's another empathetic thing. Just 69, like divorce was still decently taboo. I mean, people were definitely getting it enough that it was the the focus here of a of a film, but I thought it was cute. Yeah. Enough about that movie. Let's let's no, let's wait, move on to a real is, movie. There's a scene where they go to watch If. That was important. Okay, fine. Your real movie. My Night at Mods, directed by Eric Horomer, Manuel Chemod. my favorite filmmaker and this is one of his absolute best might not be my absolute favorite but it's uh, considered by many to be his best movie it's a movie that was famously mocked by uh, the gene hackman character in night moves that is two hours of watching paint dry it's a very talky movie and i guess i like really talky movies because i love this movie and i love all of romero's films he's sort of I don't want to gush about Eric Romare, but he's... Why not? You do it all a goddamn time. <laughs> he was instrumental in turning me into the uh, movie-obsessed person I am now. We'll leave it at that. Anyway, this is a movie about a guy, I think he remains unnamed for the whole film, played by Jean-Louis Trintignant. It's a black-and-white film, which in 1969 is a little unusual, Eric Romer's last film, La Collection News, was in color. But, oh, I guess I'm going to have to get into all this. Eric Romer is famous for his series of films. This is part of his Six Moral Tales. He did a series in the 80s about comedies and proverbs. And in the 90s, he had the Four Seasons series. This is actually film number three in his Six Moral Tales series, but it was the fourth one he filmed. I'm not even sure, as much as I've seen these movies, I'm not sure it matters what order you see them in, but this was intended to be number three, but it came out as number four. Every one of these six moral tales is about this man who has his mindset on this one particular woman, is attached to this this woman that he's intending to marry or is very serious with. And uh, he comes across, is is put in a situation where he he has a flirtation with another woman and is tempted by her. And uh, in the end, he chooses not to give in to temptation and return to his original paramour, the woman that he's decided to spend his life with. 
so all six of these films follow that basic pattern, but they have, you know, all of the details are really different in each one. My Not at Maud Trintignant, our narrator, is an engineer who's moved to Clermont-Ferrand, a uh, provincial town in France uh, after, you know, he's like 35 or something, and he's spent, uh, you know, the last eight years in South America. And so he's kind of new in town. He's a practicing Catholic, so he goes to Catholic Mass, and he sees this pretty blonde woman, and uh, he decides that this is the woman that he wants to marry. If not this woman, some woman just like her, some pretty, young, blonde, Catholic, virginal, pure woman is exactly who he's going to marry. So he sets about trying to meet this woman and you know, is always looking for her all over town, often sees her on her bicycle, but doesn't know how to meet her. One day he's uh, he's going into a cafe for dinner and runs into an old friend of his, Vadim, who he hasn't seen in a long time, 12 years, I think. And they spend the evening talking about Pascal, who just happened to be from this town, Clermont-Ferrand. But uh, a lot of this movie uses Pascal's wager, the one where he uh, says that, well, it's a good bet to have faith in God because if God exists, then you will be eternally rewarded in heaven. And if he doesn't, well, then nothing lost. So you might as well bet on God. But specifically about belief, how the the lesser probability gives your life meaning, because if you bet on the bigger one and you lose, then you have literally nothing. If you're betting on the little one and you lose, then you still have hope because you knew it was a slim chance. Exactly. And we come to learn that this theological debate has much more to do with having faith in in love and falling in love than it does theology at all. We have several scenes in this movie set in a Catholic mass, but there isn't, I don't feel like there's much Catholicism here. I know you have a thing against Catholics, but probably the Catholicism in this movie didn't bother you that much. No, can I just say that I, I was so confused for the first half of this movie because for some reason I thought that Jean-Louis was meant to be a priest. Oh, <laughs> and I don't know why I thought that, but it took me until they got to Maud's house until for me to realize that he's not a priest. Well, but he's just that uptight, I guess. Yeah. So Vadim, his old friend, says, uh, "Let's go visit this woman, Maud, who I've been in love with forever, but she she doesn't like me much, but I still like to hang out with her. You'll you'll love her. You'll you'll think she's great." And she's a divorcee with a child, and it's Christmas time. Uh, snow plays an important role in this movie. So, you know, they spend the evening, they have dinner with Maude, and Trintignant talks about how he objects to Pascal, even though he's a good Catholic, he objects to how Pascal doesn't like good food, you know, is totally ascetic when it comes to, like, the pleasures in life. And, and Jean-Louis says, I hate that about Pascal. It's, it's evil to not think that that good food, good wine is is good. And so anyway, the whole movie sort of plays out as this sort of like Trintignant, you know, what he thinks and what he does are totally at odds with each other. And this dinner with with Maude, uh, who's this liberal, free spirited, spontaneous woman, you know, she's magnificent. She's you know, they have an incredible conversation about everything Um Trintignant has a, a long drive home, and she's and it's snowing out, and she says, "Oh, you'll 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 slide off 
the road. You can't you can't leave. You have to spend the night at my house. Uh, you know, I have a bed in the other room. Don't worry about it. It's nothing sexual. And and they uh, he ends up spending the night with this wonderful, beautiful woman who um, who doesn't have an extra bedroom. <laughs> yeah, who doesn't have an extra bedroom. And uh, they don't end up sleeping together. But it's uh, there's you know there's enough there that they they end up going out on a you know hike the next day with some friends anyway um but um i don't know how far should i go eventually he he <laughs> he, re- he rejects maude and and uh, ends up continuing to pursue this blonde pure catholic uh girl francoise and uh and so the next evening we have a a a, a very dull evening at francoise's sort of dorm room where he ends up having to stay because of the weather and uh you know we're, we're, she does have an extra bedroom and she do, yeah and it's uh and so we're, we're treated to this contrast between this vibrant woman who trintignon rejects and this you know sort of dull pretty thing that he is you know wants to marry wants to make his wife and uh there's so much I have to say about this movie, but I I don't want to I don't want <laughs> to go on and on about it. Well, I'm kind of curious about what you have to say about this because you know, so I like Romare, but I haven't I haven't had my Romare summer because I get really caught up on this these like cycles and if I should be watching them in order or not, and I've already watched things out of order, and then I get confused. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Honestly, it, it doesn't, doesn't, matter. doesn't matter. Well, so this is not so I, I would say that I have liked every single Romero that I've seen to the point where I need to to just go crazy with it because I, I really enjoy these movies. But this one felt I like this one a lot. Don't get me wrong, but it felt underbaked in comparison to like the others that I've seen. And because it, it was just a little too on the nose and a little too overt, whereas I feel like his other films and they're not, you know, like the collection which came out before this, I think actually mm-hmm. had more to it in a way. It was a little less like this movie kind of wraps up in a really nice bow in a way that's clever, but also a little too like it kind of takes away from the rest of it, which feels so real and so conversation and philosophical based. And then it kind of ends up in this weird almost like cinematic trope of a love triangle. Okay. I'm I'm glad you said that because I have a theory. <laughs> okay. It's what I love about Eric Romare is his close observation of human behavior and how he makes you feel about these characters exactly how he wants you to feel. And every action that they make feels like is absolutely stemming from this conception of this character that he has and his movies are really tightly plotted people complain that very little happens in eric romare films but that's not true they a lot happens they're very tightly plotted but it's so small scale that it feels like nothing's happening but in most of his movies it's very organic like what's happening you know when it reaches the end it feels like oh this is the natural conclusion you know this is where the characters would take us but he's got a couple of movies and they're actually especially beloved movies of his my night at mods and the green ray or it's also known as summer that deal with this idea of fate of like this character who is sort of deciding whether it's sort of predetermined what's going to happen in their life it's 
in this movie, it's got more of a religious aspect to it as it, you know, as in God has already decided what's going to happen with, with all of us. And in summer, it's more about this lost woman who sort of leaves it up to fate to uh, decide what happens to her. And when it's in these two movies, when parts of the plot require a certain amount of coincidence, I'm slightly less enthralled. Like I love both of these movies, but this aspect of everything sort of being predetermined or, or coincidence in them makes them feel slightly less satisfying to me because it feels like it's fighting against the natural sort of organic paths that these yeah. characters might take. And I think that, you know, he's very consciously using that idea as a subject in both of these movies, but I think it, in a small way, it sort of works against what he's really good at. And that's why this movie ranks slightly lower than some of his others for me. That's a, I'm, I'm with you on that because it just felt like it felt contrived. The, the final scene is contrived, but it, it still has this underlying, you know, truth to it. I mean, like the characters reactions are still truthful. And I mean, the, it's funny because even though I say that this love triangle is contrived when he has a movie where it's about, you know, this juxtaposition of the two women and the two nights with the two women, that wasn't contrived to me. That felt natural, even though it's clearly, I mean, like this would not happen back to back the way it does in this movie. Uh, you know, the way everything kind of happens, uh, you know, obviously in a two hour span, but yeah, I don't know. Like that didn't feel contrived to me. Like that felt really poignant and interesting, but it also felt like it was sort of this natural, you know, for him, for this guy to, to begin everything about talking about the, you know, this, I guess like showing how debating theories is just so much easier than facing reality and sort of showing him talking with his friend at the beginning and, and having these philosophical debates and then showing him in these situations, basically acting against his own interests, even though it's very clear that he wants something, but he also won't let himself have it. And when he thinks that he wants something, it ends up being not at all what he thought it was going to be. And yet because he made his mind up, he still goes for it. That stuff feels very human. That stuff feels universal. Yeah. What struck me this time through was that at the very end, you are set up. Like, it's very clear that Romare wants you to think, oh, why did he choose Francoise when Maude is so amazing? But you, at the end of the movie, you see... Because men do that, Bart. <laughs> <laughs> you see that, like, this life that he's carved out with Francoise is at least on the surface, they seem very happy with their child on the beach and Maud is like on her second marriage and it's not going well. And just her spontaneity and her, like, you know, living life, you know, a moment at a time and not, you know, predetermining what, what she's going to do has sort of left her in a not very happy place. And you think, oh, wait, is, is this movie trying to say that maybe Trintignant made the right choice? But I don't know. It's I think it, it throws a lot of possibilities out there. And it's, it's all sort of done in a playful kind of way where it's just showing you the, you know, all of his movies are, are all of his best movies. He, he did a few that were outside of this this very particular genre. But, uh, you know, this this relationship comedy romance genre, 
they're all sort of playful and about you know romantic entanglements and we're supposed to find them kind of fun and the point of the movie is is to sort of see the characters choices and and decide whether they've made the right ones and Romero's very even-handed in this movie and in a way that I didn't necessarily recognize before. Well, I think what's what's nice about this is that there isn't anything wrong with Francois whatsoever, the blonde. And also Maude. I, I guess that's the thing is really, this is such a, it's a skewering of Jean-Louis and his choices and the way that he talks about... See, <sighs> The problem is I have to watch this movie again to really nail down what the hell his philosophy was, because I, I will admit that the beginning of this movie was like kind of I was nodding off after a while because I keep going on and on about this whatever philosophy of God. And it's like you like I got it. <laughs> but then I don't I don't know. I, I want to hear you like apply that to this. Do you think that Maud was the bigger bet? Or do you think that Francois was? Because Francois was, you know, she was the easy choice in his mind because this was the woman that he thought that he should marry. And she was easy in that he knew what she wants. And it was predictable, if not steady and consistent. Whereas Maude was the person who challenged him and pushed him out of his comfort zone. But was that also not in itself a bigger bet, you know, to, to take a bigger chance? What, like, you know, how do you apply that to his philosophy? Well, I mean, I think this movie kind of shows both sides of it. Like as far as Pascal's wager goes, I think that uh, Jean-Louis applies it as far as love goes and saying that my faith says that I should put all my chips on this Catholic woman because that's the right thing to do. And so we see how that wager plays out. But at the same time, Jean-Louis talks about how he objects to Pascal the way he doesn't enjoy the pleasures of life. And that's sort of a lead up to this one night with Maude. You know, they, they have such chemistry, such spark, and the conversation is scintillating. But the fact that he ends up rejecting her is him sort of, at the very least, it's ironic because here's a guy who you know, according to what he just said about Pascal, should be jumping at this opportunity to spend a lot more time with this amazing woman, and he doesn't. I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around this Pascal's wager crap with who Maude is, though, because, I mean, it's a movie about how these women are not to be objectified because they do not fit into a perfect little box the way that he wants his wife to fit into a perfect little box. And right. We find out that Francoise is not the woman that he assumes that she is right. Even though she is, but she also is the woman because there are certain aspects about her that are predictable. I mean, like, you know, she's the woman that you marry and have a child with and, you know, she will raise them Catholic, you know, like there's a consistency and there's a, predictability to her but yeah she also is not the virginal dream queen that he thought she was but that doesn't seem to be really an issue but the same thing with Maud. it's like Maud is this really intriguing and interesting person but she's damaged goods as far as the catholic church is concerned but i'm just not i don't really understand what, how pascal's wager factors into this other than to be something that this is what this one man is obsessed with and it actually has no bearing on life and that life is bigger than 17th century philosophers or it's bigger than God. I think it's just 
it serves as a counterpoint to the plot and it's sort of an indicator of how Jean-Louis overthinks everything and that you know, you can't live your life by a philosophy and and when you try to or or you can i think it's just sort of a recombination of all sorts of philosophical ideas and and we're just supposed to watch how what he says contrasts with what he does and how what he thinks contrasts with what actually happens in reality and i think it's all just counterpoint to what's really a basic love triangle story in certain ways but it's done in you know with such close attention to character and behavior that it's the sort of thing that i obsess over yeah i mean i look forward to watching this again especially now realizing that I have to kind of pay more attention to their philosophical <laughs> crap <laughs> because I definitely was struggling for a bit there. I, uh... But at the same time, I mean, like, it's not that I don't like talky movies because I do. I just couldn't figure out where this movie was going. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's not essential to the film, the philosophical stuff. I know, if but you... it's the first hour of the film. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But the more you pay attention to that stuff, the more you know, you can see how it interplays with what happens in the movie but it's about a guy who over intellectualizes his life and romance and what he should be doing i you know one thing i did like about this was this idea about how things can be built or broken by merely one person making a decisive choice you know and that mm -hmm. he had these paths that he could have built and you know there there are many places that you can go but, you know, if you just decide this is the woman I'm going to marry and this is going to be it, you can achieve it. It just might not look the way that you thought it was going to look. Or maybe it does and maybe it's fine. And maybe that was all you wanted was the idea of achieving it. Or you can make it look the way that you want it to look through willpower. Right. That stuff I, I found very interesting. Well... Sticking with my lowbrow choices for this entire year, I'm going to go ahead and marry Take the Money and Run. Directed by everyone's favorite pedophile, Woody Allen. Look, I, I've said this before. I, I'm sorry, but I cannot divorce Woody Allen from my subconscious. He He's too ingrained in there. I have very mixed emotions about him in light of recent news. That's not that recent, you know, and I certainly am not really that interested in his newer movies as they've come out, but I love his early stuff. It, it kind of goes back to something i mean comedy is like is huge for me and in a way that i think it you know comedy tends to be always dismissed to its own little corner its own little genre corner of comedy and i think that a good comedy can easily be like the best movie i've seen all year if it's done correctly if it you know if it has enough twists and turns and it has uh, a really sharp point of view and it makes me laugh out loud, then yeah, absolutely. And Take the Money and Run is, it's not my favorite Woody Allen, but it is, you know, this is his second film that came out. His first, or I would say first his first real, real film. film. Yeah. 
and it's about a guy named Virgil who wants to be a bank robber and he um is a complete schmo <laughs> <laughs> that's the plot you know it's it's basically a mockumentary it's shot as as a sort of fake documentary which i something that i really love we you know I, we keep talking about how we should do a documentary episode when we and we absolutely will but 1960s documentaries and 1950s documentaries i get such a kick out of because they're so strange <laughs> there's like really a funny and dead super seriousness to early documentaries and especially when people did not really understand how to act in front of a camera or what they looked like in front of a camera and you really get this great slice of people putting on their best masks I think in these early documentaries, it's like they're, they're always the most polite and respectful face they could possibly put on for the camera. And whenever they sort of slip into humanity, it is such a thrill. And so anyhow, I, I have a, a, a love hate with early documentaries in that way. Well, and the godlike narration that this movie yes. uses is it's used to great effect because, you know, the narrator, makes out like Virgil is this, you know, criminal mastermind genius. He'll sort of list his failures in a matter of fact way, but it still presents Virgil in this sort of criminal genius way. And this sort of godlike narration is present in so many of these 60s and earlier documentaries. And it's uh, one of the things that's so much fun about this movie. Exactly. It's that it, it takes something dead serious and it undermines it with just the stupidest crap. <laughs> and it's so dumb that it is just great. I mean, like, there's there's a lot in this movie. The first time I watched this movie, I was I really thought it was fantastic. I have to say, on the second time around, it wasn't as funny as the first time. In part, I guess, because I remembered too many of the jokes or something uh, yeah i'm not see it's funny i love comedies so much but i'm not much of a rewatcher because i end up m sort of half memorizing these things on a first watch and then you know second time around I'm, I'm i'm rarely kind of laughing out loud unless it's really like something really great and i laughed out loud rewatching this for sure which is how i know that i still it's still a great movie for me but it has so much that Woody Allen ends up doing a lot better. And oh, that's what I was talking about before is that like, I hate to see when people who are so good at comedy feel like they've outgrown the ability to do comedy, or they feel like they suddenly have outgrown the genre and then they go off to make their super serious movies. And that's when I, I don't care about Woody Allen and I've never really cared about Woody Allen when he's being dead serious. There's very few of his movies that are serious movies that I actually really like. And when they're good, they're very good. But I, for, for the amount of movies that he has, I keep coming back to his early comedies. I mean, like Bananas is one of my all-time favorite comedies. Sleeper is my go-to. Sleeper is amazing. And it's funny to watch Take the Money and Run and see so much that ends up getting reworked and reused to be a better version of a gag later on in his other movies. But yeah, I mean, this movie is just great. I mean, like him him in the marching band <laughs> playing the cello. And every time the marching band moves forward, he has to bring his chair in front, sit down, try to get a couple of 
bows in and then he moves a chair and can't, you know, it's like, like really stupid stuff like that is just like that to me is that's, that's where I find God. <laughs> Not really, but you know, like you can get to as much truth about humanity in a way. I, I would say that in, in, in the way that you can, you can wax poetically about my night at mod. I feel like I get that degree of reverence over a really good comedy when you get something that's just like just pointing out how to to both to undermine something so serious or to undermine something that we do all the time and we don't even think about. You know, like I love the interviews with his parents and take the money and run mm. and how they're always going on about like, oh, but he's such a good boy, except that he's a terrible <laughs> boy, you know, like and the sort of juxtaposition of the you know, the, the, what the parents are saying, and they're pretty much throwing him under the bus in part because they're trying to act for the camera. And, you know, the mother doesn't really want to say that her son's a criminal because it's her son, but the father's like, oh my God, like, let it go. I don't even want to be here. This movie feels like a collection of gags. Like he's sort of, it's, it's much more connected to his stand up comedy, I think, than his later films where he really sort of you know, starts to tell stories, even, you know, even his comedies, his later early comedies are more coherent and they, they don't just seem like a pile of gags. They seem like they're, you know, they have a direction or they're trying to, to say something. This movie's not trying to say anything. You know, it sort of feels like the jerk to me in a lot of ways, like a lot of the jokes yes. in this are from, you know, in the jerk or from Steve Martin's stand up act. And, and I don't know Woody Allen's stand up stuff as well, but I does feel like a lot of this stuff is like he's, he's reusing stuff from his act and he's just sort of jamming them together where he, wherever he can fit them and sort of using this loose pseudo documentary structure to just get a bunch of, you know, jam a bunch of stuff together. And uh, his sensibility is all there and it is fun to watch. My problem with comedies is that I feel like I age out of comedies. Like I have certain comedies that I think are the the funniest things in the world at a certain age. And then I, you know, as a you know, decade later, I'll watch it again and say, oh, okay, I, I, I see where I was in terms of my taste in comedy at that point. And, uh, but I've moved on from there. And I was sort of getting a bit of that with this movie. It was like, oh yeah, I, at a certain point in my life, this, this sort of thing was so funny to me. And it's almost more interesting for me to look within, look at look at myself and, and think about how these sorts of jokes shaped my sensibility and have sort of moved on from there than sort of appreciating this movie as a movie on its own level. But, you know, I think for both of us, it's just we have so much history with Woody Allen that, you know, it becomes a personal thing. But even even the aging out of comedy stuff, I mean, I know what you're talking about, but I don't think it's about you growing up and getting older and wiser as much as it's about the fact that when comedy is good, it gets done to death. And part of the joy of comedy is part of the joy of horror, which is that if you don't expect it coming, it's really great. You know, like that's the, the jump scare that I can enjoy where I can enjoy that so much in horror. I, I absolutely enjoy that in comedy. But once you know the gag, once you've already been on the ride several times or several knockoffs of the ride, you know, then you know, all right, the ghost is going to come out at this corner. And, and you know, it's still amusing. Like maybe it's still intellectually funny, which is how I thought, I, you know, like I, I'm with you on this. Parts of this movie really did make me laugh out loud though. And I mean, I would say too that like, it reminds me of his stand up in that, 
it's been a minute since I've listened to his his original stand up, which I find very funny too. I'm big on listening to old stand up records and stuff like that where I can get them. Now actually, now with YouTube, <laughs> everything's around. But um there is that sensibility where I think a lot of his gags end up being about, you know, undercutting himself, but also saying a universal truth within that. I mean, like I love when he starts to woo this girl just because she's beautiful. And he talks about like after 15 minutes, I wanted to marry her and a half hour later, I didn't even want to steal her purse. You know, like that, that's like, oh, I, I guess I'm really falling for her. But I love too where he talks about, uh, you know, I never, I never knew someone who knew so much about socks and t-shirts. She was kind of a genius in that way, you know, and he's going on cause just like does like laundry for a living or whatever, you know, like she doesn't, they don't have anything in common other than the fact that he thinks she's beautiful and she, she thinks he's cute. But that's such a great little mini satire itself on love and falling in love with somebody and these like stupid facts about them that are just so fascinating when you're falling in love with somebody and just how quickly something like that can run its course once that magic wears off and you're like, oh, we had so much. We had everything. And it's like, well, well what did you have? Well, uh, she knew so much about socks, you know, like <laughs> That in itself is such a great universal truth. And it's just like this throwaway gag, really. I mean, like, it's just sort of like a something that kind of moves this fake plot along, which again, like, as, as you said, it is it is a series of little gags. But I think they're connected enough that I wouldn't say that this is sketchy, especially in con considering the third movie that I chose, <laughs> which we will talk about. That And that's just not just any pretty girl that he falls in love with. That's Janet Margolin, who's Lisa from David and Lisa, which we covered on a previous Kiss, Mary, Kill yes. episode. And she, she manages to get some laughs. I mean, a lot of it has to do with how terrible she is as, as a housekeeper, as you know, as you know, doing, doing wifely things. I like her cooking the meat in the plastic. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's good. Or like, you know, he has the day of his big robbery and he's like, I got to get up really early and she's in the shower and he can't, he can't go. <laughs> that's perfect. I mean, like, you know, that's that right there is its own little picture of domesticity. I was happy to revisit this movie. Didn't work quite as well as I'd hoped it would, but. I would say that the funniest gag this time around for me, I you know, of course, originally it was the handwriting for the stick the up, gub. The classic. <laughs> yes everyone's trying to figure out what what he actually wrote on this you know stick up note and then they pass it around like no i'm pretty sure that says gub <laughs> that doesn't know it's it says gun no i don't think it says gun but uh i the thing that really got me this time around was when he's back in jail and they're like the narrations like the men get one hot meal a day a bowl of steam yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's mostly just the throwaway lines that you maybe didn't remember the first time you saw this movie that I didn't remember anyway that, that that got me. That's the key. It's these little things you don't remember. When you remember it, you know, some you lose some of the magic there. I mean, I still find the, the handwriting stuff like funny. I still find the, the cello scene funny, but it doesn't create that automatic laugh anymore because I've just I've seen it so much and I've seen similar things done. But I, I, I think that there is, in good comedy, there is just as much to take away as, as there is in something as thoughtful as, as a Romare film. And that's not, I'm not putting down Romare by saying that. I really think comedy gets a, a bad rap. And also, I, that's why, you know, it's so frustrating when, the, you know, these big rom-coms or whatever come out and they just have the lamest gags. It's like, come on, man. Like, 
good comedy is like transcendental. Well, for the record, I do like some of Woody Allen's more serious movies, like Crimes and Misdemeanors and things like that. Oh, I, I do too. You know, like I like Another Woman. I, I have to, I've been meaning to rewatch that. I love Annie Hall, which is a comedy, but I also think that you could classify that as a drama to some degree, just because it gets you in more of a, a dramatic way and a romantic way. I think Annie Hall, it, it, it really mines for a real truth. Actually, another thing about this movie is that this was his first, I think his first collaboration with Ralph Rosenblum, who's his editor, who I think can also take a lot of credit for Woody Allen's entire career. <laughs> A comedy that's not edited correctly is not comedy. So I think that that the rhythm that he created, that really quick cuts in rhythm in this is something that has led to comedy the way that we see it now. And that's part of why when you go back to this stuff, it's not as amazingly hilarious is because we've seen this so aped since, but it's still great. I have a feeling you're going to go back to this point for your uh, kill pick. Maybe. I, well... We'll get there. Well, anyway, my kill pick is largely considered the worst Godzilla or kaiju movie ever made. It's All Monsters Attack. Directed by the, you know, original Godzilla director, Ashiro Honda. But we are, you know, well into the, the kitty period. Uh, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm no kaiju expert. Hopefully we have a guest coming on soon who uh, can tell us all about Japanese rubber monsters. But I always loved like creature double features growing up on, on Saturday mornings and I don't know the difference between all these movies, but I do remember that there was this kitty one with Manila being the, you know, baby Godzilla being really obnoxious and he's running away from criminals and it's really terrible. And that, that was all monsters attack. Like, and I also, I sometimes would like to put on these Godzilla movies when I was, uh, you know, had a video store because they're fun to watch in the background. And I would sometimes put on All Monsters Attack thinking it was Destroy All Monsters, which is actually a good Godzilla movie with all sorts <laughs> of, of monsters in it. And and this is another one where it brings in like a dozen of the, you know, creatures from the Toho kaiju catalog into one movie but it does it in such a stupid way you've got this kid ishiro who is bullied by these other kids and he sort of takes comfort in his dreams he dreams about how he wants to be on monster island and hang out with manila who's like son of godzilla and watch all these monsters fight on monster island so this again i'm no expert but this has to be the first Godzilla movie where there's no actual monster action in it. Everything, all the monster action happens in dreams. Nothing is getting, you know, no Tokyo is not being destroyed by monsters in this movie. They're all on monster Island, just fighting amongst themselves. And it's all in Ishiro's dreams. And as if that wasn't lame enough, we've got this <laughs> plot that's in 
you know, reality, not in Ishiro's dreams, where there are these two criminals who've stolen a bunch of money and they're hiding out in an abandoned factory near Ishiro's house. And he, you know, gets mixed up with them and he they end up kidnapping him. And the movie turns into goddamn Home Alone, where he's like, this little kid who's up against, who's been been inspired by the monsters that he dreams about on Monster Island, and like is up against these two idiot criminals who and plays pranks on them and defeats the criminals in the end. If you're looking for a Godzilla movie, this is not the one you want to go to. It's fairly insufferable. Ishiro and uh, and Baby Godzilla are really obnoxious, and it seemed like a perfect kill pick because this is the one that. Nobody wants to be in the Godzilla catalog. I don't know anything about Godzilla. <laughs> Actually, the only thing I know about Godzilla is that as a kid, uh, it used to play all the time on TV, and Mothra specifically would play constantly. And so I have the the Mothra song memorized because like that would happen all the time, and I had no idea what it was. And I was always disappointed as a kid who loved like creatures, especially dragons. I was just always so disappointed at what Godzilla looked like, <laughs> which was just big rubbery and, and silly. And then, you know, the fighting was I, I've never been interested in like wrestling or things like that. And, and so I just thought the fighting was really boring. You know, I wanted more. I don't know what I wanted more from Godzilla, but I just. Godzilla has never clicked for me, which is why I'm excited for the point in which we do watch all of the, these Godzillas from the 60s is because I got to know. I mean, maybe it's funny because watching this one, you know, this this relative clip show, I was kind of having a good time. Like I thought it was actually kind of fun. So maybe I'm now finally mature enough to like Godzilla, you know, and I've seen like the new Godzillas where they have better special effects and I'm still pretty bored by them. The original Godzilla I've seen. Uh, and that's a great movie. I enjoyed that a lot. But that also really isn't about a monster. You know, it's about other stuff. So I don't know. This one was this. There was enough camp and craziness like the mini min, Manila mini Illa is insane. <laughs> so I'm very excited to to finally watch his real movie. I also was sort of fascinated by this like latchkey kid <laughs> storyline <laughs> where it seemed like the whole movie was a commercial for not leaving your kid home alone. Like the parents are at fault. Well, that's the happy ending of the movie. Oh, we'll never leave you alone at home again. The kid's like, it's cool, whatever. But really, you know what I want to do is I'm going to break in the spirit of admitting when I don't know what I'm talking about, I'm going to defer to the best letterbox review of this film ever by Justin DeClo from the important cinema club. And I'm going to, I'm just going to read it to you. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> it's real. Sh it's not too long, but uh, I think he actually nailed it in the best possible way. And he writes, a young boy who lives in a blasted, toxic wasteland is left alone at home for days on end. The child is bullied and only finds solace in electrocuting himself unconscious and hallucinating that he's hanging out on a monster island with his drunken friend, Miniella, who cheers with him as they watch Godzilla rip the arms off of monsters. A duo of robbers, weakened and desperate in the current economic climate, 
captures the child because they need some information, but the child feels no sympathy for their plight and sicks the police on them. Might makes right. The son beats up his bully, gains the respect of a bunch of loser kids, and then humiliates a painter for no reason. And so the child learns that the only way to survive is by punishing the innocent. He is the monster now. The cycle of violence continues. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, fuck. (laughs) Dude, it is like, what, like, what is, it is a blasted toxic wasteland (laughs) that this kid lives in. It's insane. Well, I, that is. I was fascinated by the little kid's (laughs) storyline. Right from the get go, Godzilla is all about like how we're destroying our planet with, uh, right. you know, atomic weapons. And, you know, there's a Godzilla battles a smog monster at some point in one of his movies. And that one's all about like pollution and stuff. And so there is, there's totally an environmental message to these Godzilla things. But this one's just about beating kids up. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. What was the environmental? Me- I mean, like, I guess they're doing a lot of recycling. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess just the blasted wasteland and, and how this kid has to has such a lousy life because we've destroyed our planet and our cities. Isn't that what these giant monsters are? They're like forces of nature and we have to that are destroying our cities and we have to somehow keep total annihilation from happening. Not in this movie. No, not in this movie at all. I mean, like, there could have been something there, but no, this really was just about a young child learning the cycle of violence (laughs) (laughs) and perpetuating it. Well, we will be revisiting kaiju movies at some point on this show. I just thought it had been so long that we've been running this thing without ever having dealt with Godzilla. And, uh, I mean, honestly, Godzilla was probably my introduction to 60s cinema because I was watching these things as a little kid. So Godzilla had to come up and uh, I wish we didn't waste his debut on such a terrible movie. But here it is. (laughs) Enjoy. Well, for my kill pick, I, I pulled a Bart this time. Instead of picking a movie that I actually hate, I picked a movie that I remember not liking. And decided to give it a rewatch and see if maybe this time around I would like it. And that film is The Magic Christian. Directed by Joseph McGrath, but more importantly, a Terry Southern novel is what it's adapted from. Terry Southern being the guy who uh, worked on Dr. Strangelove and he worked on scripts for The Loved One. But don't mention things like candy and that sort of thing. No, I was going to (laughs) say, say the good things. I like Terry Southern. So here's the thing. This movie... This is like Jenna Catnip, this movie, because it has everyone that I like or am interested in. That includes a cast, Peter Sellers, Ringo Starr, Spike Milligan, John Cleese. Uh, John Cleese ended up writing uh, extra dialogue and punched up the script uh, along with Graham Chapman, both of whom appear in this in very tiny roles. 
Uh, I don't think Graham Chapman even says anything. Maybe like a one line. No, Graham Chapman has a has a lot of dialogue. He's just uncredited. But what I read was that um, John Cleese and Graham Chapman had actually written a previous version of the screenplay that was completely thrown out. And, yeah. and they, th- but but still used. I think that they, it was still adapted from what they had written. Yeah. Was my understanding. Maybe I'm wrong. Some of these cameos are really good, and I don't know if I want to spoil them. But let me start with the plot of the Magic Christian, which is that an eccentric rich man, Peter Sellers, named Sir Guy Grand, decides to, uh, he doesn't have a, a son or a wife, and, and he needs an heir, so he goes into the park, and he takes a homeless man called Youngman, who's Ringo, and uh, adopts him. And Ringo is obviously an adult. <laughs> it is. 1969 he just you know this is was during the recording of uh let it be and and abbey road and stuff like that the whole plot of this movie is this idea that with you can buy anything you want and you and money makes anything happen so let's do that and so don't watch this movie thinking that you're going to get a movie watch this movie as a series of loosely connected sketches you know, think of it almost like you're watching Saturday Night Live and the theme is capitalism. <laughs> the theme is undermining capitalism. There's a great soundtrack for this movie by Badfinger. Uh, you know, with the if you want it, here it is, come and get it. Paul McCartney wrote that song and gave it to Badfinger. They were on Apple Records. Um, and Thunderclap Newman. I don't think. Uh, something in the air was actually written by Pete Townsend, but Pete Townsend was definitely involved in that band somehow. And so I have to say that on a rewatch, I kind of like this. I kind of really liked it. This shit is punk rock. Actually. I hated it. And I always thought I kind of liked this movie. (laughs) I mean, I, I hadn't seen it since high school. Definitely wasn't my favorite Peter Sellers thing, but I was I always thought, yeah, that, that movie's kind of funny. There's funny bits in there. There are definitely a bunch of scenes from it that I remember clearly, and thought, oh yeah, good movie. I I hated it. I I thought you know some of the satire was clever, but none of it was funny. Like none of the gags worked for me at all. I thought actually Ringo, kind of deadpanning his way through the movie, you know, just seeing these really ridiculous things and having this underwhelmed reaction to everything was kind of amusing. But otherwise, it all just seemed like 1969 idiocy, like not funny at all. And some of it, I think, can be blamed on the director and the way this movie was not cut like a comedy. It lets these scenes linger and, you know, just get, you know, get to the joke and move on. You have too many bad jokes in this movie to let them linger. Just, you know, if one joke fails, move on to the next one. That's a big problem with this movie. It's never boring. Like, there's so much happening all the time, but it's not half as, it's not a a quarter as funny as it should be, considering all the talent involved and, you know, some, some good satire. Like, there, there are bits, like... There's good satire in this. The Terry Southern shines through. Not enough, though. Like, there, you know, just these throwaway bits where, you know, Ringo's saying pornographic books would be even better if we took out all the dirty words and just put blanks instead. And they, you know, 
And it's a good like little satirical bit where they give an example of and he put his blank in the blank and, you know, lots of satirical social commentary that should have been funny, but just doesn't play, doesn't come off. And the whole, you know, last third that takes place on the Magic Christian, like this cruise ship that only the most elite people can get a seat on. And all of that is terrible. Like the, no. the wackiest, like <laughs> most 60s, like getting all these people running around, flailing their arms in the air and and uh, acting ridiculous is it's just not funny at all. First off, the part. So, OK, I remember the whole ship stuff being really confusing and weird. I, I don't know why this time this this movie just totally hit me. Maybe it was because I was coming in more charitable than ever (laughs) and in hopes that I would like it more, but I really, it really like finally clicked for me. And that was just that it's all about the, the expectations of everybody on this ship and then undermining it. And I just love how, how it is undermining them on every single level from like predictable to stupid. I mean, like I love the ship's vampire. (laughs) (laughs) And of course this is like, you know, the ship that's owned by, Peter Sellers. And so it's all about him setting up, you know, oh, come to this glorious, wonderful, exclusive area, and then just giving everyone exactly what they wanted, but not in the way that they expected to get it. And that, like, once once I sort of accepted that Peter Sellers was like a very willing participant in this as a character, it suddenly kind of unlocked it for me. And made everything much funnier because it's not a matter of it all being like, here's a bunch of random shit that's happening. It's really specifically like Peter Sellers set this up to fuck with you. (laughs) And so like stuff like the there's everyone has these, uh, you know, such a, a fancy yacht that they're all on is that they have these little screens in their bedrooms where they can see what's happening in the with the captain on deck. And there's like, you know, suddenly they see this captain being kidnapped and you know, strung up in his throat slit by bandits. And so all of these old, you know, rich people freak out and they're like, we have to take the ship back. We have to storm. And they all like rush over to the cabin. And of course the, you know, it it was all just like a video, you know, it's like, it's like shitty gag just to freak people out. And the captain's totally fine. And he sends them all back and he's like, you're all a bunch of, you know, And, and of course it's like these people, these like conservative rich people of, that are, are far too old to have done anything in this scenario either way. Like they never mind that they don't even, they're too rich to understand what they're even doing, uh, you know, or how to even function in a real world situation. But for some reason, it just like, it, it really worked for me. And again, that this idea that he would be like, Oh, well, we have a ship. We need a vampire, <laughs> you know, which, which then ties back into like Nosferatu, you know, like it, there, it's not totally random. Like it's based on these sort of ideas of what's kind of funny or amusing, uh, you know, and, and some of it doesn't work. I mean, like there's uh Yul Brenner as a, <laughs> <laughs> with Roman Polanski as a, also as a cameo, there, um, I mean, the, my favorite part of the ship is the Mr. Universe dancing with you sketch where it's just these bodybuilders. First, it starts off with with Peter Sellers turning to some other upper class twit and being like, you know, you think there's any, you know, blacks on this ship? And the guy says, oh, why? Why? Of course not. Why would there? This is far. You know, he doesn't realize he's talking to the owner of the ship of 
you know, of course, this is far too classy for, you know, and he uses a slur. And then immediately it cuts to these like this black and white two bodybuilders. And they're like, they're doing this really homoerotic dance. They're way <laughs> like right in this guy's face. Way too many jokes where the punchline is gay. No, but but you know what? They, but it's like it's in like that Graham Chapman way, though. Like some of it doesn't work. I mean, I loved uh, the strip Hamlet at the beginning is brilliant. Well, with your boy, Lawrence Harvey. Now that I know who Lawrence Harvey is, which I definitely didn't when I watched it the first time, it's even funnier now. But I I mean, that to me, like this idea of like, like, yeah, let's like get everyone to come to the theater where they've paid $300 tickets to sit, uh, you know, at the front of uh, the perfect orchestra box seats or whatever. Let's like do Hamlet. But then in the middle, when he's giving the speech to be or not to be, he's <laughs> ripping his pants off. Like that is just a concept. It's a it's funny, funny idea, but it, when in execution, it's not very funny at all. I'm sorry. It really made me laugh this time. It totally made me laugh. I, I love the, there's like an art auction where, you know, they're trying to come up with different ways to signal to the auctioneer that they want to bid and everyone's trying to be discreet. But of course, Peter Sellers is like bringing out air horns and he has like lights, like he was signaling to a plane or, you know, these sort of like, like the most overt and obvious ways to sort of undermine whatever embarrassment. Again, these like rich twits uh you know can't can't handle everything that that defies expectation and and societal expectation and john cleese of course is always plays a good rich asshole (laughs) (laughs) you know or rather a stooge you know like a the head waiter sort of thing you know like the guy who takes his job much more seriously than he needs to the sotheby's bit is a kind of a perfect monty python sketch and exactly on its own would be fine (laughs) strip hamlet with graham chapman come on that's so clearly graham chapman maybe but it goes on for too long or something no it's it was perfect the dog at cruft's being a panther (laughs) (laughs) the large black dog i i mean like that that's like the level of stupid humor that i also really enjoyed in this where it's just like there's just all these like dead animals and you know the fact that also that everyone's so upset about these dead animals at Crufts while you know in the juxtaposition to like an actual uh protest in the street i mean i guess a lot of this stuff ends up being very 101 again because it's from the 60s and it's it's all been done better and edited better since and even done by uh, monty python better you know i would say that the equivalent of strip hamlet is brian opening his window you know, naked and seeing a whole crowd of people staring at him. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like it's the a... same joke. It's the same joke. It's like, except that it's just flipped. And shorter. You know, now Bra- the joke is on. Exactly. It's shorter. It's more to the point. And so, like, it, there's a lot of this stuff in here that I'm now I'm finally intrigued to read the book, I will say. And I wonder if the book is also more to the point than this movie really is. Some of this movie sucks. I will I, I, like the, you know, the hot dog vendor is boring. The restraint stuff is boring. I, I will say that there is a really, really good one-off gag in the ship that I don't want to spoil because it's just really good with a very well-known lady. You like that? Yes. <laughs> Cause it's just so, stu- it also reminded me of Graham Chapman. Maybe. When he's being chased to death off a cliff uh, in in the meaning of life, maybe. 
You see? <laughs> <laughs> but there's just something so stupid about it. I mean, like, it's obnoxious for sure. But this time around, it was just like, just the absolute ridiculous, like that, that's what I like about this is it really, it really feels punk rock because it really mixes like these really stupid gags with this like kind of highbrow satire about capitalism, but then delivered in like a really dumb way, <laughs> which is kind of what I think about punk rock. Anyhow, it's like, you know, they have like, you know, a real legit message, but they can't get it out there without screaming and throwing shit and like trashing the place. And that's kind of what this whole movie is. It's like, it's just that it doesn't look, it smell like punk rock, but it is. Yeah, well, there's a lot of terrible punk rock. It's 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 the spirit that's <laughs> important. Is. And uh, I, I guess this movie has the spirit, but it's pretty terrible. We did it. We got to the end of the 60s successfully. We did it. What did what did these movies have in common? Maybe my, maybe mining humanity, mining a, a truth about people, a microcosm of humanity in each of these films. Maybe I'm working on something here right now about how we all lie to ourselves. We think we're good people, but we're not. We pretend to be good people. Hmm. How we justify our bad behaviors. I don't know. I think there's something there, but hmm. <laughs> that's even more connected than what I was. Th I was thinking like di these are all different microcosms, but they're all they all have larger meanings than than what's being presented, which granted you can say about anything. But like, I think that they're all dealing with like just th there's an overlap in in the amount of, you know, humanity. It's about it's about. The salt of the earth. <laughs> it's the everyman. You're being a little more general than than I'm able to connect to. The Godzilla movie is the only one that I can't really work into my idea about uh, us doing bad things and lying to yourself, of course, because it's a little kid's electrocuting himself to escape reality all the time. <laughs> I, I guess think you nailed it. I think we mm -hmm. did it. We got there. Yeah. I'm shocked. I I was <laughs> I didn't think it was possible. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's tenuous, but it's there. 1969. It makes sense. We've had the May Revolution, 1968. The Vietnam War is going on and on and on. Protests are happening like crazy. The government is lying to the people about the necessity of this war and about, I guess the government's always lying to everybody, but we're, we're realizing it. Nixon is in office. Oh, a duality of what we say and what we do. Yeah, that's right, isn't it? Yeah. And that ties into lying to yourself, but it's also about like not giving yourself what you need because you think you need something else. And acting in that way and realizing that it wasn't what you needed, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. We all think we have these good intentions, but really we're shitheads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we do next time, our next trip through the decade? I would love to hear from people. If you have an idea of what you want us to do, if you want us to play a different type of game, we've had a couple of concepts we've thrown around I'm also totally fine to go back and start from 1960 and do this again because I have fun doing this. Yeah, it works out pretty well. 
And there's certainly enough films for me to kill in all of these years. <laughs> Except I'm finding that most of the movies that I want to kill from each of these years are things that we've already watched on the show. But that means that we're going to have to really press ourselves, you know, like this will be a really wild second round if we really do it. Yeah. But if you can think of another game, I, I, you know, like I'm trying to even, I don't, I don't play these games. <laughs> Who goes to a bar? Who has a game we can play? I think we shouldn't stray too far from this formula, but if we can come up with some twists, that might be fun. I don't know. Tweet at us. We actually put this question out there for our 1968 Kiss, Mary Kill, and we got some responses. We'll have to go revisit those, and because I think there are some good ideas. There were good ideas, but I want more. <laughs> <laughs> Even from those same people. Yeah. <laughs> Just want to know what's possible, you know? But yeah, 69, we did it. It only took us four years. And that was us doing these every five episodes, roughly. We don't want to do too many of these things where we're, we're struggling to, to find the thematic link at the end. Actually, here's what I want. I want us to find the thematic link between Bart and Jenna's taste. Now that you all have listened to us pour our heart and soul out every single time we do a Kiss, Mary Kill... There are very few movies that we absolutely agree on, it seems, but we seem to be in similar ballparks pretty often. Yeah, but what is that ballpark? Yeah, it's a good question. Makes you think. Well, in five episodes, you're going to hear something about 1960 from us, but it may be Kiss, Mary Kill, maybe something else. So you can look forward to that. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.